happy Thanksgiving to everybody. It's Thanksgiving week. It brings to mind gratitude and, and that we, uh, you know, what we're thankful for. And that scripture that says, give thanks with a grateful heart. And I, it's weird because you might think, well, he's, they're repeating themselves. Give thanks with a grateful heart. But you can open your mouth and thank somebody for something and never have gratitude in your heart. And you can, I tell you what, somebody does something nice for me at the office or, you know, somebody made coffee before I got there. I can tell them thank you. And it's just a, a there is thanks in my heart, but it's, it's just a formality. But I tell you what, you get pulled over by a state trooper and he tells you, I'm just giving you a warning you will give thanks with a grateful heart. <laughs> and that's not part of my sermon, but think about that this week. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Let it come from your heart. All the things that you say and all the thanksgiving you give, let it come from your heart this week. Um, but we're, we're in Philippians, and, and I know it's been some slow going the last few weeks. We, are, we have really been just kind of digging into the beginning here of the first few verses of chapter two, but it's going to speed up. Um, but one, one more week where it's going to be a little bit slow and we're going to really be just kind of just really almost into phrases at this point, even more than verses. Um, but it will speed up. And before you know it, we'll be done with chapter two and three. And then there's chapter four. But again, I will, it will speed up. This, this part's been just kind of a lot of information. And, um, and we've been talking about the importance of not grumbling and disputing. We've been talking about having a character that is blameless and innocent and above reproach. That's all part of Philippians 2, chapter 14, uh, verse 14 and 16. The more that you are doing those things, the more that you are not grumbling and complaining, and the more that you are living blameless, the more that you are proving indeed you are a child of God. These are things that you will exhibit as you are a child of God. We're living in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. Anybody experienced that this week? I did. I experienced it this week. We're living amongst that. And because we live differently, we will appear as lights in the world. You're going to shine all the brighter because the world is getting darker and darker. And even so, these things that we're talking about, it's not always easy to not grumble and complain, is it? It's our nature to grumble and complain. It's hard to live blameless because we make mistakes, don't we? I, I, I sinned this week. I don't know about you, but I, I did commit a sin this week, maybe one. <laughs> don't tell my wife. She thinks I'm perfect. But the more that we fall in love with Jesus, we start to minimize the bad things and we maximize the good things. But it's not always easy, is it? And in fact, without the Holy Spirit's help, it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. My self-will wants to rebel against doing good. Why is it like this? I know you're wondering. Y'all immediately, why is it like, why couldn't God have made it easy? Why, could, why couldn't he have just made it just simple and, and, and easy for us all to do? And it, it, but it's not like that. We live in the middle of a, of a crooked and a perverse generation, and we're supposed to live in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation. How else will they see light? If we're not living in the middle, but because we're living in the middle of it, it creates problems for us. It's easy to give in to the pressures. It's easy to do what everybody else is doing. That's the easy way, and we all are guilty of it sometimes. We've all gone along because that's what everyone else is doing. And the second thing is we come out of that society, so its influence is still in our flesh. We've got God's help, and we've got him washing us clean, but we came out of a society that was... That was 
dark and perverse and, and, and all that stuff. And, and so we, we either have to, to change our ways or we're going to fall back into that way. And this morning, we're going to see what Paul says is necessary to change and keep from going back to our old life. Today is kind of like, how do I not only make the change, but how do I keep from going back to the old life? And in fact, if you can do it, what we're going to talk about today, I can guarantee, that's a lawyer making a guarantee. Y'all might want to, your ears perking up, aren't they? But I will, if you will do what Paul is talking about today, I guarantee that you will change. Your character will become noted for being blameless, innocent, and above reproach because God's going to do it in you. I can guarantee if you do the things we're talking about today. And before we look at, uh, in depth at what Paul's doing, I want, us, I want to make sure we have our context so that we're not taking anything out of context. And I just want to read Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may, be, may, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Holding fast the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you. And you too, I urge you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. We're going to get into all, we're going to explain all that. Remember our larger context, these all things that he's talking about is referring back to chapter 1, verse 27, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. So I'm going to do this like I did during the uh, Sermon on the Mount series. What is the theme of Philippians? Conduct yourself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That's the theme of the whole book. So when he's referring to these all things, that's what he's kicking back to. He wants us to remember we are to conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. It's related to how we're living out our Christian life. That's the the whole world will see. That's unity. That's humility. All those things we've been talking about that uh, all before we even got to this, this particular passage of scripture. All those things. And that includes no grumbling and complaining. Remember, grumbling is the starting point for disputing. It's where everything starts. And it starts out as something we mutter under our breath. You know, we do it where our wife or our husband can't hear. But that's the way it's, oh, I saw a smile over there, Shannon. Shannon's grinning. You got problems. Uh, Yeah, I'll see y'all after church. But we mutter it under our breath a little bit. And then all of a sudden our attitude starts to get worse and we look, at, we look for people who are, we think will listen to us. People who are going to be responsive to what I got to say. Oh, I know if I go talk to sister so-and-so, she's got my back. And then it just, it's like an echo chamber and it grows and it grows and it grows and it grows. And, and all of a sudden, you know, these people who are sympathetic with us, they're giving us new ideas and it's feeding and it's becoming this giant monster. It becomes into the, we, we become argumentative. We start to, to take it outside of private conversations. We start to enlist others. And, and all of a sudden it takes on a life of its own. But the Christian is to be without grumbling and complaining. We're to be both like that in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. God takes grumbling against him as a very, very serious sin. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way because it is the outward evidence of a heart that doesn't trust. If I'm grumbling and complaining, it's because I'm saying there's something about God that I don't think he did right. 
There's something that, God, you could have done better. There's something. That's what my heart is saying when I grumble and I complain. It denies God's goodness, it denies his omniscience, and it denies his omnipotence when I grumble and I complain. Think back to the, the Hebrew children. Here God did this massive miracle. He brought them out of Egypt with the ten plagues, and then he also parted the Red Sea in front of them and, and drowned Pharaoh's army in, behind them after they crossed on dry land. And guess what they do once they get to the wilderness? Well, man, there just wasn't enough manna today. It's not good enough manna. I wish it was something other than manna. We need water. All these things, and, and God had provided all the way. What made them think he was going to stop complaining? And because of that, he judged them in the wilderness. He didn't like grumbling and complaining. That was something God didn't like. God loves us. He absolutely loves us. And he proved that for all time and for all eternity on Calvary. We sang about the blood just a minute ago. And nothing can separate us from that love. He's good. All the time, all the time, God is good. And, and he, not only is he good, but he is sovereign. So you take his goodness. Think, capture that thought in the back of your brain. God's good. Now put in your, on the other side of your brain, God is sovereign. What sovereign means is he can accomplish anything he wants. Nothing can thwart the will of God. So God is good. God loves you. And now he's also sovereign. So that means he can do anything that he needs to do, anything that he wants to do, and he will do everything that is best for you. Romans 8 and 28 declares, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his excellent purpose. He's going to accomplish what we need to be accomplished. It will not always be what I want to be accomplished, but it will be what I need to happen in my life. That's what I trust him to do. And we can be joyful because of that. No matter what my circumstances are, God is performing his will. If I've got a, a report of cancer, if I've got a marriage that's ending, if I've got children that are acting crazy and have become addicts, I, I, it is, it's bad, yes, and I'm going to pray about it, and I'm going to take my needs to the Lord. But what I can tell you is this. God is sovereign. God loves you. And God has the power to take care of every situation. I don't have to worry about my circumstances. I can also not just not, just not worry. I can also be joyful. That one's crazy, but it comes when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And as we saw last week, the purpose of not grumbling and disputing is to give proof of our character and our relationship with God. It impacts those around us when they see that we don't do that. As Christians, we should be noted for our godly character. That should be something that people around us that we work with, unsaved family members, anyone who's around us knows, hey, I, I noticed that this person has a godly character. And, and that... that triggers thoughts in their head. Maybe they're a Christian. And then they find out, oh, you are a Christian. And all of a sudden, you are a light in the world as a result because they are seeing this. Your godly character should shine through. It should be seen by everybody around us. And as you mature in Christ, you should be increasing in your obedience to the principles of, of, that God has set down and, and to his commands. This is done out of our love. We do it because we love Jesus. We want to be more like him, so we more and more obey him. And in turn, it results in our character then becomes blameless. Our character becomes without fault. All of a sudden, we're living in personal holiness because we love Jesus so much that we're following and we're obeying. 
And as you mature in Christ, you should become marked even by innocence. We talked about this last week. And in this context, it means having a character that is unmixed with guile or evil. Like my, I don't have to be perfect, but there's not guile in me. I'm not seeking out evil. I, somebody's going to cut in front of me on the highway, and I might think, oh, that sorry sucker. I just, I, I sinned because that's anger, right? I, I did sin, but I, I wasn't trying, I didn't go out driving down the highway looking for people to, to run off the road and be mad at. That was a sin that happened, but there was no guile in my heart. It was, it was a sin that happened, but it was, but that my character was still innocent in that. And I, of course, will ask for forgiveness, you know, immediately. God, forgive me. Wash me thoroughly from all iniquity. Cleanse me from blood guiltness. All that stuff. You know, do all of Psalms 51. Um, But that's what we should live to be. We should live to be lights in this world because this increasing maturity is going to put us above reproach. I'm not trying to make you feel pressure to be some sort of perfect example. And we even talked about this a little bit last week. Sometimes we're reticent to witness to people because we know that there's some things in our life that we haven't dealt with and we're worried about being called hypocrites. Remember what the response to that is? Take care of that thing in your life that's making you feel like a hypocrite. Take care of that thing so that when you are a witness, you're a light in the world. You're beyond reproach, you're above reproach. And this is a journey that we go on through our whole lives and the Holy Spirit is our teacher and the Holy Spirit is our guide through this whole process. The absence of grumbling and disputing in the, in the presence of being blameless, innocent and above reproach, it gives proof positive that you are indeed a child of God. You have a special relationship with the creator of the universe. Do you realize that? We take it for granted, don't we? we oh yeah, I follow Jesus. You're, that means you're following the creator of the universe. We have a special relationship with him because through his grace and through his mercy and through our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into his family. We can approach him as a child would approach their father with great respect. I respect my father. I have tons of respect for my father, but I can go up and throw my arms around his neck. I can hug him whenever I want to because he's my, he's my good father. I can do those, and we're the same way with Jesus. We can have intim- intimacy and respect, even to the point of being able to call him Abba. That means dad. Dad. You can call him dad, and it means something. But this special relationship calls for specific behavior. Because I respect him, because I love my father, I behave in a certain way. And that character is to be in sharp contrast with the world we live in, which is marked by crookedness and perversion. So how is the Christian to accomplish all of this? Paul mentions it in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. We're going to look at that phrase in detail in just a second. But first, I want to to finish this overview by looking at what Paul says here about his personal interest and his response to them working out their salvation. Paul is very interested in the Philippians. I mean, I hope y'all have gotten that in the things we've talked about so far. Paul is, is massively interested in what goes on at Philippi. He loves these people. This is, he, he feels a very pastoral duty towards them, and he loves them. He even talks about taking glory in their actions. Like, he's, he's proud, godly proud, but he's proud of what they're doing. Paul taking glory to, uh, to what they're doing is not a sinful pride. It, the word here can be used as sinful boasting and, and is in other places, but it can also be used to express great joy. The KJV translates it as rejoice. He's rejoicing in their behavior. 
the verb form is used in Romans 5 and 2 and uh, 5, 5 verse 2 and 3 and it's translated as exalt or exalt I'm sorry exalting which Paul does in the hope of the glory of God and in his tribulations since they're used by God to bring him maturity Paul will have great joy before Christ if the Philippian believers will live and follow his teaching that's going to make him just as happy as can be and also know that he's doing good work for God He'll know that he's been successful in his work. This is the same desire that any pastor has for the people in his church. Anyone who's ministering to, that's Brother Bruce's desire for all of us. That is exactly, what's being expressed here by Paul is exactly how Brother Bruce feels. It's, It's my desire for you as your Sunday school teacher. I feel the same way as your Sunday school teacher. From my personal standpoint, I want to know that my labor has not been in vain. I'd like to know that. It's not that I, I'm not going to judge any or hold anybody again. If you go out and, and, and get arrested tomorrow, I'm, I'm going to still hug your neck. I'm going to love on you. But it, it is my desire that you're listening and hearing and that some of these things are being taken to heart. And in addition, I want you to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ for your own sake, not for my sake. For me, it's great. Yeah, lovely. Oh, that's awesome. But it's really for your sake. Because as you do, then I can rejoice with you. We can rejoice together, and we will know that we both have pleased Christ. We have both pleased Jesus. And that was Paul's desire for the Philippian believers and my desire for you. Brother Bruce's desire, Sister Donna's desire, Brother Keith's desire. Paul, by the way, that was an awesome sermon last Sunday morning, wasn't it? I meant to say that from the beginning. I, I was chasing a three- and a four-year-old and had to go outside. I don't know if you saw me walking out, and I had to listen to it later, but... They were being bad, and they were distracting, and so I took them out. And, uh, but it was, that was a powerful sermon. Thank you, Brother Keith. And he wasn't feeling good when he preached that, and I appreciate that. So Paul goes on in verse 17 to address his personal response that was true regardless of the things that they did. He says this, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. This statement refers to something that is true. The actual meaning here comes out, it's translated, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, and I am, I rejoice and share my my joy with you all, or since I am being poured out. The reference to being a drink offering upon the sacrifice, it goes back to the Old Testament. It's talking about the worshiping of God through the sacrifices. Remember, there were all these different kinds of sacrifices that they, they had to do. And amongst the types of sacrifices was a drink offering. It was also called a libation. What you did is the priest would actually take a bottle of wine or some other specially prepared liquid and he would literally pour it onto the altar. He would take that and it, was, it would not be the cheap stuff. I mean, it'd, be the, it'd be the kind that, that, that the marriage supper at Cana, when they came back and said, most people give us the good stuff at the beginning, you save the good stuff for the end, that's the good stuff. That's what they're talking about. It was the good stuff. And one of the differences between a libation offering and an animal sacrifice is that the libation was always completely used. This is really, really important, guys. This is super important. If, if, when the, with an animal sacrifice, sometimes pieces of it would be given to the priest. Sometimes pieces of it would be used for other things. And then what was left would be put on the, on the altar. But what Paul is saying is, I am like a drink offering. Literally nothing is left in the vessel when it is poured out. Poured out completely. There's a difference between the libation offering and an animal sacrifice. 
that part of, the, part of that sacrifice even on an animal would even be given back to the worshiper. A piece of the meat would be given back to the guy who brought the sacrifice. But Paul is saying, I'm leaving nothing on the altar. I'm pouring it all out for you. In essence, Paul is saying that he rejoices that he can be totally used by God for the service of their faith and not just used, but used up, completely poured out. It was a sacrifice on Paul's part to do ministry. He points out in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 18, that he rarely gained for himself in this ministry. And though he probably had the right to ask for, for things in places he went, he earned his living with his own hands and he preached the gospel without charge because he did not want to be a burden on the churches. Remember, he started, these are, every church was a home missions church back then. There weren't any, there weren't any big old churches, you know, with a long established history and fancy buildings. Every church was a home missions church. And so he was going around just giving of his time. No one could afford to pay for him. No one could, you couldn't have had an evangelist come in to the church at Philippi. It was all getting off the ground. And so he wouldn't want to be a burden on any of those churches. Paul did not want to do anything that would hinder them in their hearing, receiving, and responding to Jesus Christ. He was set to be a sacrifice for the service of their faith. And he rejoiced in God's content. God always provided. There was never a moment that God did not provide for Paul, and he rejoiced in that. But even more, he rejoiced that he was bringing the word to them, the word of God. The personal circumstances didn't matter to Paul as long as God was being glorified. And he wanted to share his joy with them. That was the purpose of this letter. But he also wanted them to know that in his own joy, he saw what God was doing in them. God's doing a great work in Bentley. God's doing awesome things in Bentley, and, we, and, and it's exactly what Paul's talking about. It's, it brings joy. Paul also desired them to join in with that rejoicing so that they could rejoice together. It was a simple call by Paul to rejoice with him in, in, in all that God was doing in his life and then all that God was doing in their lives. And they could rejoice about each other so the church could rejoice about Paul and Paul could rejoice about what the church was doing. The call here is simple, but do you see that the accomplishing of it will require them to have the same perspective on life as Paul? The call's simple, but for me to answer the call, I have to look at life like Paul is looking at life. That's our challenge today, because I often have an anti-Paul outlook on life. We all do. Every one of us sometimes has an anti-Paul look. Can we rejoice as Paul did in what God was doing despite our own sacrifice, despite our own tough sacrifice, I mean, circumstances that we might be in in the present? Can we still rejoice even when the, everything looks awful? Can we still rejoice? Because, here's why, are you even aware what God is really doing? His ways are far above my ways. I sometimes look around and I think everything makes no sense. This is not how I would have ordered the world, God. This sure isn't how I would have blessed Chris. I'd have done some much better things for Chris than what you're doing for Chris. But I don't see his ways. I don't, that's how Paul could rejoice in prison. Because he looked around and he said, I, it's, it's God's God's plan anyway. It's all his purpose. It's all his glory. But sometimes our focus becomes distracted by our situation. It also becomes distracted by our own selfishness. We can be like that sometimes, but to be able to rejoice as Paul did in being a sacrifice in the service of the faith of others while in the midst of difficult circumstances requires us to be mature. We must be mature in our walk with the Lord. 
rejoice in being a sacrifice? Chris, what are you asking me today? Rejoice in being a sacrifice? But these are the very principles we have been learning from Paul since the beginning, since we looked at his first command in 1 and 27, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. The final lesson Paul teaches us in this section is holding fast to the word of life. That's a loaded phrase. Hold fast to the word of life. What's it mean? In the context here in verse 16, we find that it is by holding fast to the word of life that we can fulfill those commands. Everything that Paul is telling us we'll be able to do if we hold fast to the word of life. If we hold fast, if we hold tightly, we will then conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. We'll be of the same mind. We'll, we'll have the same love. We'll be united in spirit and intent with one another. And our, we'll have one single purpose we will do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, and we will humbly consider others as more important than ourselves. This is all a review that we've been talking about for the past few weeks. These are the kind of things we're going to, but we got to hold fast to the word of life. We're going to look out for the interest of others instead of just our own. We will have the attitude of Jesus Christ who humbled himself to pay the sacrifice for our sins. And to the degree that we hold fast to the word of life, so to the extent that you hold fast, if, if, you are, if you're really holding fast or you're just lightly holding fast, but to the degree that we hold fast the word of life, we will also be able to rejoice as Paul did even when our circumstances are bad. All of these things will follow if we hold fast to the word of life. So what's that mean? Well, I mean, it, it sounds like it's self-evident, but I want to look at the words. Hold fast means give close attention, hold forth, or give heed unto. It's used in the sense of give close attention to. Pay very, very close attention to what I'm talking about. And in Acts 3 and 5, they used it. It was talking about the lame beggar who gave his attention to Peter and John after they told him to look at us. He was hoping to receive something from them, but he then got more than he could imagine when they healed him. The same word is used in 1 Timothy 4 and 16, and it means in the, in the give heed to sense. Paul commands Timothy in that verse to take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. The idea is to pay attention to how he was living and keep in line with what he was teaching. So pay attention to what you're doing, and whatever you're teaching, you also live that way as well. And that's the same basic idea as in, here in Philippians 2 and 16. Holding fast is to heed, pay attention, and then not stray from it. The it is the word of life. So don't stray from the word of life. So what's the word of life? Again, you guys all have an idea in your head. You, you have a, a real good idea and you're probably right. The reference is to the scriptures themselves and to who the scriptures reveal. So the scriptures and then who the scriptures reveal. The word, the logos from John chapter one, the word, remember word is, the Greek word is logos. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then you go down to verse 14, you find out the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word is the medium by which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. The word is how he has chosen to like step down from heaven and reveal his character, reveal his personality, reveal his nature, reveal his love. That's how we find out is through his word. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through Jesus Christ. John calls Jesus the word in John and one. And in, in first John one and one, he even uses the title word of life for Jesus. So it's the scriptures and the one the scriptures reveal. Jesus' teachings have been written down for us in the gospels. They were expanded on in the epistles written by the apostles. These laid the foundation for our being part of God's family. 
It's a foundation for everything you are, everything you ever will be. Your entire relationship with God is in the Word. It's the foundation. The term life here refers to our spiritual life. It's not our physical life. It's our spiritual life, which is received when we're born again through our faith in Jesus Christ. We, we who were born in our trespasses and our sins are made alive. You were born dead. <laughs> I'm being honest. It sounds crazy, but you were born dead. And when you were born again is when you became alive. Ephesians 2 and 5 tells us that this is the promise of eternal life, which will allow us to dwell with God forever. How many of you want that? That's that promise of eternal life, which will allow us to dwell with God forever. It's not that the scriptures themselves, the scriptures don't bring you life. You couldn't, as Sister Melanie Shock does the eat the word. You could not like take a Bible and make soup out of it, eat that. That's not what we're talking about. The scriptures don't bring life themselves. They are holy though, and there is power in the word. It's not the words themselves, however, but it's what the words reveal. The words reveal truth to us. They reveal life to us if we will follow them. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in, in John 5, 39 and 40. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. See, they, they thought just the scriptures gave them eternal life. And he said, no, no, it's me that gives you eternal life and you won't even come to me. The scriptures are the word of life in the sense that they reveal the means to live by faith in the person who is the word of life. In John, uh, 1 John 1 and 1 4, uh, uh, John puts it this way, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and with our hands we've handled concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus, remember. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and then was manifested to us. Jesus, again, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his only Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. To hold fast the word of life is to pay attention to the scriptures so that you may know and diligently follow the one who is our source of life. Hold fast to the one revealed by scripture. This moves knowledge of the Bible beyond some intellectual pursuit. You could memorize every word in the entire Bible, starting with Genesis 1 and 1 and going all the way to Revelation 22. You could memorize every single thing, and it could just be an intellectual exercise for you. It's just something you have memorized. And this, what we're talking about today, moves beyond that intellectual exercise into the realm of actively applying the Word of God and what it says to your life and your everyday situation. That's what we got to do, right? All of these commands, all of these precepts, everything we have talked about in Philippians, they have been given to us by the one who made us alive. He made you and me alive, and these commands are his commands. The word of life is the word of the one who defeated death, hell, and the grave. And eternal life follows those who believe in him. And when you add to this the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Ghost comes upon you, the Christian has an even greater reason and ability to know and follow what God is revealing. It is the action of the Holy Spirit that makes the Word of God living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. 
piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4 and 12. 12. Jesus also put it this way in John 6 and 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Follow his words and the one who is revealed by those words. You cannot live the Christian life based on your intellectual, your physical, or even your financial, uh, whatever you have, your financial abilities, because the flesh profits nothing. We must be completely, absolutely, totally, everything we have must be dependent upon God. The Christian life can only be lived successfully by knowing and following what Jesus has said in the scriptures and what the scriptures have revealed about him. Jesus put it this way as he concluded the Sermon on the Mountain. We went into this one in detail, Matthew 7, 24 and 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand and the rains descends and the floods came and the winds blew and, the, and, the, and burst against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Remember, we spent a lot of time on that. Great was its fall. Are you like the wise man? Or are you like the foolish man? Are you holding fast to the word of life? I want us to look at a few practical applications of this. I want you to see how it applies in your own life. Paul, again, I want everything is, is kind of like falling underneath this conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 10 and 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Taking up your cross is the same idea as Paul put forth in Romans 12 and 1 of being a living sacrifice. Remember, he wants to be a poured out sacrifice, and he's talking about us being this living sacrifice for Jesus. Paul says to humbly regard one another as more important than yourself and look out for their interest and not just your own. Jesus said in, in John 13 and 34, we are to love one another as he has loved us. I fail this commandment more than any other commandment in the entire Bible. This one, I fail more than any other. It says to love one another as he has loved us. That's hard. And by yourself, it's impossible. With your own strength and with your own ability, it is impossible. It's only when we take on his character through the things that we're talking about, holding fast to the word of life. When I take on his character, I can love like him because I am his hands and his feet. But if I do it on my own, I, I can't. I absolutely can't. There was a story, and I read this on Facebook. It, it was a pastor whose daughter was in need of an organ transplant. You may have read this before. And her younger brother, the daughter, was the, was the closest living uh, match, the, the closest donor. And so they told the little boy, you're a match. Could you, you know, donate a kidney to this little girl? And the boy thought about it and thought about it, and he agreed. He, he, he loved his sister. He wanted to do it. And, and as they began to prepare him for the surgery, his only question was how long would it be till he was with Jesus? Because he thought when they took his kidney, that was the end for him. And in his simple faith, he trusted that Jesus would take care of his soul and he would give his life for his sister. I don't think any of us have ever been called upon to make that kind of a sacrifice. But do you love him enough to fulfill it? Yeah. 
if we have the world's goods, if we have the blessings that the world has given, the, the money, financial, whatever it is, and we see a brother in need, do we meet the need? Yes, it will cost you. It could even be a substantial cost, but will you meet the need? Because in holding fast to the word of life, the consideration is not your financial loss, but your spiritual gain. Think about it that way for a few minutes. It's not your financial loss. It's your spiritual gain. Does the love of God dwell inside you? Jesus said that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then he would take care of everything else. Why are we so concerned about amassing and protecting material things? Building a kingdom down here and making it, you build walls around it to protect it. Why are we so worried about that? George Mueller of Bristol, England, he lived by a simple faith that God would provide not only for him, but for thousands of orphans he took in over his many years of ministry. He simply prayed for the Lord to provide his daily bread and willingly shared everything that he had to any orphan who was brought to his, his facility. At times, he said later in life, it may not have been much, but there was nothing, there was never a need that wasn't met. And at the end of his life, he recorded that neither he nor the children ever went hungry. Paul says we are to be without grumbling and disputing and instead be blameless, innocent, and above reproach. Jesus said that men will be held accountable for every careless word we speak. Often it is tempting to join in with the world and join in their complaining or their gossiping or even listening to it makes me a party to it. There is also the pressure to speak ill of other people in an effort to to fit in or to, to promote ourselves or to seek revenge against somebody. And conversely, we've all been the victim of it too, right? We've all been the victim of a whisper campaign. But the Christian life is lived successfully by holding fast to the word of life, period. Hold fast to the word of life, period. That means I'm not going to act like the world. We can talk about how great that sounds all day long. It's beautiful language. We must know and we must follow the word. We know it's the logos. In the beginning, God created the, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and all that stuff. We know, we know it's the logos. It's God's word. It's God's method of speaking to, it sounds great. But to do this, you must know the word of life. We can say fancy phrases and cliches all day long, but you must know the word of life. And in other words, you must know the Bible. You must know his word. You must believe it and you must obey all that Jesus has commanded. I said this a few weeks ago, but I got into the, uh, but as I got into this and uh, um, this, when, when I was younger, it was read three chapters a day. How many of y'all heard that? Remember back, you got to read three chapters a day. I, that was what was taught to me. And I, it was a three chapter a day treadmill. I got on this treadmill and there were many wonderful days where I woke up early and I would have time to spend on my three chapters and God would reveal things. Even at a young age, I was learning God's word. Let the word get deep in my heart. But there were also nights where I'd gone out to eat with my friends after church or youth service or something like that. And I would realize on my way home, I've not read my three chapters yet. And it's 1150. I got 10 minutes to get it in. And I'm tired and I have this task to complete. So I grab my Bible and I read as fast as I can. Not for understanding, not not to even get anything in my heart at all, just to, to fulfill the obligation is why I was doing it. Tick the box is the reason I was doing it. And I did it. And I didn't get one thing out of it. I would rather you read three verses. I would rather you read one verse and understand what you just read and take four years to get through the Bible than read 
50, ver- 50 chapters a night and get through the Bible in one month and not have a clue what you just went through. Yeah. If you are not already having a daily devotion time, let me suggest a good way to start. You can simply begin by reading the book of Proverbs. Pick one chapter a day and read and find one verse in that chapter to apply to your life. Proverbs and Psalms are are just so easily digestible. They're just great places to start if you don't have a a, a life like this, a daily daily Bible reading life. Studying Proverbs and, and Psalms will get you in the habit for some of the more complicated stuff. It will get you, it'll, it'll start building up that discipline in your brain. People in, I know people, and I see them all the time. They walk around desperate for a word from God. They'll travel miles to hear someone with the gift of prophecy, just to hear what they feel they must have. And yet at your fingertips is the very word of life. God is speaking to you in his word. The word that brings life and helps conform us to the image of Christ. When that word is in you, you will be willing desirous even of being poured out. When that word is in you, you will want to be poured out for others, desirous of being a sacrifice, willing to give your life for the kingdom. The implications for you and for the world around you when we are willing to become sacrifices is immense. The implications are beyond our imagination because that's what God wants us to be. That's the reason you're sitting here this morning. That's the reason he woke you up this morning. If you're looking for a word from the Lord, I'm giving you a word from the Lord, but it's not me. It's his word that's giving us all a word this morning. We are to be poured out as sacrifices for each other, and that's because we think others are more important than ourselves. We're not grumbling and complaining. We're unified. We're blameless. We're without spot or blemish. We are desiring more and more of his presence. We just want to look like Jesus. Could we stand? I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. We have a second service at 1115. Sister Kathy, I see you back there. It's it's your husband's birthday today. I was thinking about him this morning and missing him, and I'm praying for you. But I want to pray a a, a prayer of dismissal for us this morning, and I want us to go home from this service and the next service. I want us to leave this place. I just want to be more like Jesus. Remember that millimeter challenge? Just get a little bit closer today than you were yesterday. Before you lay your head on your pillow tonight, be just a little bit closer. And if, if you mess up, you can start over again tomorrow. He gives us that fresh opportunity tomorrow. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for meeting us here this morning. God, we just want to be like you. That's our desire. No one is here out of a selfish motive. We're in this room this morning because we love you. We're in this room because we want to be like you. We could be a million other places at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, a beautiful Sunday morning. We could be anywhere else, but we're in your house. And God, this is a group of people who loves you, that wants to be like you, Lord. Help us to grow. Help us create that desire for your word in our hearts so that we don't just know the word by, by the, the words and rote memory, but God, it's living inside of us. And all of a sudden, we start to be transformed into the image of the, the one that we love more than anything in this world. God, help us to be like you. Bless us and be with us and protect us this week. Go with us. Help us to have a great Thanksgiving. Remember, you're the source of everything. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.